Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. The one-week November recess is here, so here in Washington we have a bit of time to exhale and enjoy the World Series-winning Nationals. Of course, the impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump is poised to move into a new, more public phase, and Congress has less than three weeks to avert a government shutdown. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Sarah Babbage. This week, we're featuring a wide-ranging interview between California Democratic Representative Jerry McNerney and BGov Technology Policy Reporter Rebecca Kern. And Rebecca joins us in the studio now. Hello. Hi. So a big part of your conversation with Representative McNerney focused on AI or artificial intelligence. And that's essentially computers and software that can learn and mimic what we think of as intelligence. Why is that something that Congress is thinking about? Congress cares about AI because it's something affecting all sectors of our economy, ranging from healthcare to financial services. And it's also impacting the workforce, which is their constituents, um, as more lower wage jobs are being replaced by automation and and capabilities that computers can do. So pushing, uh, you know, people out of work. So this is something Congress has cared about for a while. It's just really hitting more of the front pages as we're seeing bigger impacts these days. So it's something more real and immediate than like the Terminator kind of AI (laughs) sentience. Right. I mean, it's like it's CVS checkout. Eventually, we're not going to have people checking us out at the, you know, at the grocery stores, pharmacies. So that's just slowly happening. But we're seeing in fast food chains all over the place. So I think it's um, something members of Congress really have to address sooner than later. And and McNerney is part of a a caucus to um, address this issue. So what's his focus when it comes to AI? Yeah, so he chairs, as I said, the Congressional Artificial Intelligence Caucus, along with Representative Pete Olson, a Republican from Texas. And McNerney's big concern, he's he's told me, is um, ethics around the use of AI, as well as the worker displacement issue I mentioned with automation. Um, So he has introduced a bill called AI and Government Act earlier this year. Um, It's co-sponsored with Mark Meadows. And it also, um, there's a bicameral um, version in the Senate. So um, it would just basically task the government with a center of excellence to study essentially the impacts of artificial intelligence on all the federal agencies because it's going to impact everyone. Um, So I started out asking Representative McNerney about his priorities for AI in that caucus for the remainder of the year. Well, we've had several forums and um, roundtables, and I think that's really the, the whole thrust of this is to use public events to educate people, especially members of Congress and their staff, about artificial intelligence because it seems kind of scary. I mean, who knows what it's going to do? Is it going to dehumanize society and all those questions? So uh, we want to make sure that people in Congress have a, a, a better understanding of what it means, what the risks are, what the opportunities are. And there's, there's both risks and great opportunities. Yeah. And do you, um, 
given the AI executive order that the White House put out in February, have you been building upon that effort, which the intention of that was to basically establish a national strategy on AI, which we don't necessarily have a one coherent strategy. Right. Is that something your caucus is wanting to focus on? Well, I mean, I really am glad that the administration at least saying that they want to develop an AI strategy, but I don't see any leadership out of the administration right now. I mean, we need, we need money for research. Uh, we need uh, to be able to focus our government on AI, artificial intelligence because it's so impactful. I mean, it's growing so fast. It's going to impact so many parts of our society. So we need real leadership, in that, and that means, of course, um, establishing an AI center of excellence, uh, which my bill, the AI in, um, in U.S. Government Act, does or will, will do when it's, when it's passed. And I'm glad that the administration saw that and, and also it said that that was a goal now, too. So um, they, are, they do seem to be paying attention, which is good, but we don't see the kind of leadership that's needed right now. And by that, you mean funding primarily? I mean, they just, Congress voted out um, to, to have a chief technology officer, Matt, Michael Crastios, who has been on a talking circuit on AI and workforce development. But do you think, what more would you like to see from the administration? Well, I, I mean, it, it, funding is, of course, important. But a focus on this, you know, the Department of Defense is interested in how uh, foreign governments are going to try and use AI to get military dominance. Um, how AI can be used to uh, improve healthcare outcomes. Can AI be used to, to make our cities more manageable? I mean, there's so many things that we have an opportunity for that we need uh, people in, in government that understand that opportunity uh, and also the risks. How can we mitigate some of those risks by proactive uh, by being proactive. Right, and, and I know some of the issues you've been talking about when it comes to AI um, are ethics and workforce replacement issues. Are, there, are those areas you've done legislation on or where, what are your opinions there when it, when it comes to you know, the ethical use of AI? For well, I think the, the, the legislation I've introduced, the AI and Government Act, will help in those regards because it will create a center of excellence for the government agencies so HHS can take advantage of it, so uh, the um, NSF can take advantage of it. All these government agencies, uh, the Federal Communications Commission, can take advantage of, of what this uh, center of excellence will provide. So that's really important. But yes, ethics is very important. We want to make sure that when AI grows and becomes more, uh, finds more applications, that there's some way to keep uh, the guardrails so that they don't get off off track with with identifications with um, the way they evaluate people uh, for loan applications and which is also well known already but uh, does, does it is it going to be used in a way that would uh, act, um, hurt people that are already on the margins and that's something we really want to avoid we want to do the opposite we want to uh, develop ASA that helps people uh, that uh, become more productive members of society. Mm -hmm. And how about workforce development or, um, yeah, replacing jobs that may be now out of job, people out of jobs because of technology? Well, that's, that's, all, <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, the thing that, that makes me excited right now is, is Stockton, California, which is my biggest city, is, is, has an AI strategy. Oh. And that's, that's an important model because we know that our, 
local environment is uh, particularly susceptible to AI job displacement. So what we want to do is make sure that there's, there's education and, and training and retraining. Mm -hmm. People that might be more susceptible uh, can get training early so that when those uh, opportunities come up, they, they're there and they can actually make more money and be more productive. Um, and uh, we also want to use the assets of our community. Uh, one of them is the proximity to, to the Bay Area and Silicon right. Valley yeah. uh, and, and so on to bring uh, AI businesses into our community so that we can actually have jobs for these people that get retrained and retrained. And would that be something the Center of Excellence, if that were formed, would to study as well, the impact of AI on workforce? I would think so. I mean, yeah. there there is the Department of Labor. I, I think they would want to use the assets that would be created by the Center of Excellence. And could you talk more about that, Bill? Do you have, um, I saw you have a co-sponsor with Mark Meadows, but are there any other Republicans? Do you feel like it's a bipartisan issue? It is a bipartisan issue, and um, we also see bicameral support. We've got uh, Senator Gardner, uh, Senator Schatz, um, and Senator Harris, and uh, Senator Portman. So there's uh, a good bipartisan. Is that the companion bill? Yeah, companion yeah, bill. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I think um, it's there's plenty of enthusiasm for this because people recognize that we need to do something. Yes. How about any hearing or vote this Congress? I know we're running out of time, but um, we are running out of time this year. Right. But we're yeah. gonna have plenty of time in in, uh, in the next year, and um, I, I know that this is in the jurisdiction of the Oversight Committee, and right. they have shown an interest. Now, okay. there's no date set, but I. I, I know that there is an interest on both sides of the aisle for this. So he sounds pretty optimistic about something happening. If not this year, then by the end of the 116th Congress next year. Yeah, I mean, he seems optimistic for sure. He feels since there's bicameral support for his bill and bipartisan support, um, hopefully we're thinking realistically next year because it has to go to the House Oversight um, and Reform Committee, which currently has an acting chair, and I don't think this, unfortunately, is a priority for them for the remainder of the year. But um, it, is, it is something that he feels like he has support on. You two also discussed digital privacy, which is obviously a big topic right now with uh, companies having data breaches and uh, companies selling consumers' data in ways that is sometimes um, not very transparent. So. Um, tell us more about your conversation there. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult conversation happening right now between the Democrats and Republicans in both the House and Senate um, and how to develop a federal privacy bill. I, um, I've been following it all year long, and we still, we're in November, we still don't have text in either the Senate or the House. But McDurney, um, as as his is personality is, is still pretty optimistic on this issue. He is a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee's Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee, which has been tasked, it's chaired by uh, Representative Jan Schakowsky, with um, developing the federal privacy bill in the House. And she's working with her um, ranking member, Kathy McMorris-Rogers. I check in with them regularly on the Hill. They both say talks are continuing positively. However, there remains to be seen how they're going to address two sticking points, which is a private right of action and how to deal with preempting California's big privacy law called the California Consumer Privacy Act going into effect in January. I asked Representative McNerney if privacy was something he's been in the trenches on. 
I'm on that subcommittee of jurisdiction, the Consumer Protection Subcommittee. Um, the, the caucus got together, and the Democratic caucus and that subcommittee got together, and, and we're going over how to move forward in this, you know, what compromises we might have to make, who wants to take on what issues. Uh, so we're, we're thinking hard about it. You know, American people have really felt that they've lost control of their data, and I think they're justified in thinking that. Mm -hmm. So uh, it is very important for, for us in the federal level to put some guidance out there. We want to keep, uh, so again, I, I keep using the word guardrails with tech because it's so important uh, to establish guardrails so that the people kind of have more confidence in, in what's happening with their data. Right. So our, talking about kind of guardrails or what, what the Democrat caucus wants to see, is private right of action something, and that is partially somewhat in the CCPA, that seems to be a sticking point between Dems and ours, if that's... Well, private right of yeah. action is, it's, it's kind of a complicated issue. Right. And if you know what happened in California with the CCPA, there was a ballot initiative that had a very strong, broad private right of action, and then the CCPA, which passed through the legislature, uh, and there's a little story there, I'm sure you might be aware of it, but uh, what passed through this legislature was a little more, uh, a little narrower, and I yes. think that's appropriate. There is a need for some private right of action, but you don't want it so broad that 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 it just brings the whole house of cards down. It's just right. not it's not a good thing yeah. to do. So, a preemption you mentioned. Yeah. That's a big that's a big sticking point between the yeah. Democrats and the Republicans, yeah. and the Republicans are, want a, a strong preemption. Uh, but you know, in California, we are leading the nation. We got our CCPA out there. It's going to take effect in January, as you said, and it's going to establish um, standards for for data and. Um, you know, to say at the federal government that we're going to weaken that, that that's not going to be acceptable. So uh, this is an area that we're going to have to negotiate hard with on that. On I've that. heard the saying, we want California to be the floor, not the ceiling. Like, any yeah. federal bill needs to be at least yes. as strong as that. Does that seem to be where you guys stand? Or? Well, I mean, it, 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 that's, again, this is, this is nuance. There's, right. there's, some, there's some things that I think a, a, a good, strong federal policy would be appropriate, stronger than California. There's some that, uh, you know, it's not, it maybe not. Uh, I, I don't want to be that broad, basically, mm -hmm. I'm saying. Yeah, I want California to, to be the floor. I, we can't go below that mm -hmm. uh, in general, but uh, we have to be more thoughtful than that. Yeah. So once it goes into effect, are you concerned about a state-by-state state approach, since we haven't seen this federal privacy well, bill that's, yet. That's the thing. You know, how went with the with the California Air Resources Board. California established standards, and the the EPA and the Air, uh, and the Clean Air Act adopted those standards, gave California an exemption, you know, an exception for that. And I think that was important. It might be a decent model for us to move forward with, mm -hmm. with privacy. Mm -hmm. You know, if the federal standards are needed, we need federal standards so we don't have 50 standards across the country. Um, but mm, what we've established in California might be a good model, and uh, any attempt to weaken that is going to be resisted right. by myself. Yeah, yeah. And others. Right, and Californians make up a lot of the leadership, let's say, in the That's house right, right and, now. So and I think it's important. Yeah. California has always acted in that role. Yeah. We've, we've uh, in, in, with regard to the environment, with regard to tech. I mean, California has been a leader, and uh, um, any attempt to really uh, handcuff California will be detrimental to the country. I think his analogies to California's role on EPA air quality rules are potentially really apt here, uh, though of course the EPA may be changing some things on, on that front with regard to automobiles. It does sound like McNerney and the Democrats could be drawing a line on preemption, demanding that California's privacy law set the standard for the rest of the country. Is that your read as well? Yes, I think this is where 
the divide between Republicans and Democrats um, lies. They really want to see a federal law being the floor, where California is the floor and not the ceiling. So they want a strong law that mimics California, would not, if it would preempt other state laws, it would still maintain some of the core provisions of California's law that they're supportive of. Um, so that's his issue on that. And yes, he did particularly emphasize California is a leader. It has led on environmental issues, on climate change issues, and privacy is just another example of that. Just to clarify what we mean by preemption, essentially Congress can overrule state governments and they can say, you're allowed to go beyond us or you're allowed to regulate in a way that doesn't approach what the federal government has has decided. And so that's what you're saying is is that's the debate right now. Yeah. And, and in and Republicans, and I think Democrats as well, don't want to see 50 state solutions. We want one because consumers drive and fly across the country all the time. And, and are you agreeing to different state policies on privacy when you log into Facebook or your any website once you move? It's, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> so they're trying to address one, one national policy, but re- but Democrats also don't want it to weaken, more or less, California's law, which will be in effect, as we said in January, before we're going to see any federal bill. So tell us more about the concerns that members of Congress have with the with California's law. And you mentioned private right of action before. Um, tell us a little bit more about what that is and what their concerns are with that and with other aspects of the law. Mm-hmm. Essentially, a private right of action allows consumers the right to sue a company if the company mishandles their private data. And we've seen data breaches happen a lot with um, Equifax and Capital One and and mishandling of of users' information online. So um, there is a narrowly tailored provision that allows for um, consumers to file suit. but it is something Republicans have pushed back hard on because it, it's a fear that it would put smaller startup businesses out of, out of business because they would have to basically have such a large legal team in order to you know, fight any liability issues. It could essentially make it impossible to operate. So it's a real balance there. Um, it would allow state AG, the state AG to operate um, on behalf of consumers as well. And um, that would be, in any version of a federal bill, it would, it would be giving the state AGs this power, at least, um, on, in terms of enforcement. Uh, but the debate about allowing consumers to sue is, is still up in the air in Congress. Another topic you two discussed is something you and I, Rebecca, have talked about a fair amount on this show, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, maybe better known as the Liability Shield, uh, which many credit for the existence of the Internet as we know it today, with social media and user-generated content being the, the foremost examples. Yeah, Section 230 is something that um, his subcommittee, the Consumer Protection and Commerce Subcommittee, um, had a hearing on a few weeks back, and um, they're discussing about maybe opening up that law, that provision of the law, which was went into effect back in 1996 when we really didn't have any Facebook or Twitter and any 
big social media platform we have today. Um, so it's it's protected these large companies from um, lawsuits for content on their websites, but it's also given them the authority to moderate their own website as well. So um, I think some people forget that they also do have that authority, and we've seen different companies take more hands-on approaches than others in editing content on their websites. Last year, changes were made to the law focused on preventing sex trafficking online. And um, there are also conversations among conservatives about viewpoint discrimination, what they claim is censorship of conservatives online. Um, and we've also got uh, the left looking at harmful content online, from which has been quickly spread with social media, terrorist-related content, inappropriate videos, et cetera. So it's, it's a big discussion. Um, where we see agreement is, is a little unclear right now. So I talked to McNerney about this. He said he's potentially open to narrow changes to the law, but said he wants to make sure it's done thoughtfully because Section 230 has helped his homegrown businesses in California succeed. Well, you know, I like Section 230. It's yeah. just been a, uh, it's been uh, a provision that's allowed a tremendous growth in eco in economic growth and growth in the internet. Everybody has access now. I think it's great, but there is troublesome uh, internet. Uh, um, there's troublesome information on the internet. Some of it's misleading. Some of it may be uh, inciting violence, uh, and so we need to look at this as carefully. Are there ways to exempt uh, from uh, certain kinds of activity from the protections uh, mm -hmm. uh, of the of the Section 230. So uh, this is going to have to be sort of an item by item thing. It's not. Uh, there's no one. You know, let's get rid of it or let's strike. I think we need to look at this carefully. The last thing that you and Representative McNerney discussed was political ads on social media. So last week we had Twitter announcing that they're going to um, stop accepting political advertisements, and then Facebook has been countering that and saying that they're going to allow even misleading ads on their platform. What are the congressman's thoughts on that? Yes, I asked Representative McNerney about Twitter's decision on October 30th to ban all political ads on its global platforms um, starting in late November. He was supportive of this policy and threw some shade at Facebook like a law Washington is doing these days. If, if an organization like Facebook or Twitter could identify false or misleading ads and ban that. But that's really difficult, and it, it, it kind of impinges on free speech. So what Twitter did was, uh, was very responsible. They, you know, we don't want to see uh, our platform be used uh, to weaken democracy and to make our country less safe and make individuals less safe. So I think they did uh, the responsible thing. Um, Facebook, on the other hand, has taken a position I think is really not that defendable. Um, they're going to allow known false content in the political uh, environment to be propagated, and I think that's that's dangerous. So I, I don't see why they think or I don't see how they can justify that. Is there any thought that Twitter's ban might be difficult to implement, given the range of issues and ads that could be considered political or not? Um, I mean, Facebook is making the argument that you know, they don't want to limit free speech uh, because they do have to kind of distinguish what's political and what's not. So um, how do you think Twitter's going to implement 
their policy? It's a good question. It remains to be seen how Twitter's ban will go into effect. They said they're going to be releasing their plan November 15th, next week. And so that's going to be available for the public review. And then in will go into effect November 22nd. Um, they're including issue ads along with um, advertisements from politicians. So that's where it might get sticky is defining what is an issue ad. They've tweeted some some ideas about any ad that refers to an election or candidate or advocates um, for legislative issues such as healthcare, climate change, immigration, national security, taxes. So that could be a lot of ads. I mean, that's essentially most. So I think where I think he's drawn the line, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, is if it's supporting people getting out the vote in terms of just generic, generic register to vote. Yes, that I don't think will be banned. Um, whereas Facebook is is doubling down, and it was interesting timing for Twitter to put this out. They did it during Facebook's earnings call. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg continued to say they're not going to ban ads. In fact, they're not going to fact check them because they want the public to view and decide for themselves. Rebecca, thanks for coming on. Rebecca Kern is a reporter covering technology policy here at Bloomberg Government. Thanks again. That's it for us. Enjoy the recess, and we will talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Find more on the subjects we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at BGov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Danielle Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information on that can be found at premiumbeat.com. Hey, I'm Adam Allington. I'm the host of a new show from Bloomberg Environment called The Business of Bees. Here's what you need to know about it. We travel around the country talking to people at every corner of the honeybee ecosystem. This is the largest managed pollination event on Earth. In fact, commercial beekeeping is more important to farming than ever before. But bees are also under threat from pesticides and invasive pests and mysterious diseases. It's sort of like Christmas when you go to the hive in December and you open the lid. You just hope somebody's home. If you're interested in bees too, I think you might like the show. Look for us wherever you get your podcasts.